you know, you may lose your life on the fire ground, but you'll lose your career in the firehouse. If you're a boss and you have a problem with somebody, the first place to look for the source of the problem is in the mirror because you are the leader. They have expectations of you that they don't have of other people. The upcoming leader needs to be a good follower first. That's a, that's a prerequisite of leadership is followership. Good morning, everybody, to episode five of the Kitchen Table Leadership Conversations. In this podcast, we sit down with leaders near and far to talk all things leadership. We call it the Kitchen Table because we know some of the best conversations at the firehouse take place at the Kitchen Table. And the goal for today is to focus that Kitchen Table energy into talking leadership. I am your host, Berlin Mazza. Deputy Fire Chief Bill Mack out of East Pierce is with us again today along with Battalion Chief Joe Kuferling out of Beery North Highline Fire District 2. Today, our guest speaker is a 34-year veteran of the fire service. He is the best-selling author of the fire engineering book and video series, Mastering the Fire Service Assessment Center, 2nd Edition. It's used widely throughout the United States for officer development. Also from fire engineering, our guest speaker authors a three-part DVD series, Mastering Fireground Command, Calm the Chaos. This series focuses on the fireground strategy, tactics, and ICS using actual incidents, video, and simulations. This individual is an FDIC international instructor. He was a keynote speaker at FDIC 2013 and is the recipient of the 2019 George D. Post Instructor of the Year Award from the International Society of Fire Service Instructors and Fire Engineering. Our speaker today hosts The Command Show, which is a monthly blog radio show through Fire Engineering. As a USAR team manager with Sacramento Task Force 7, he deployed to Ground Zero on September 11. Our speakers also spent four years with a Type 1 incident management team. Through TrainedFirefighters.com, his cadre of instructors has taught thousands of firefighters from around the world in leadership, team building, officer development, command, tactics, strategic planning, and mergers. Our speakers' faith and family are the most important things in his life. I think I speak for all listeners who tune into this episode when I say we are honored and ecstatic to have Chief Anthony Castro's on our show today. Good morning, Chief. Thank you for joining us today at the kitchen table. How are you? I'm doing great, gentlemen. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Most of our listeners today know who you are, Chief, by either taking one of your courses, either tuned into your command show or tuned into some of your webinars. I certainly have. Some of us have even hosted you at their at their department, and I know we had you at our training consortium just uh, about this time a year ago. But before we dive into our discussion today, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit more about Chief Anthony Castro. Tell us about you know your career. Where did you start your career? About family life, and take us down you know whatever path you want to take us. Well, thanks for the opportunity, gentlemen. Um, I think I have. Uh, I don't know if it's a unique um, story, but I was the youngest of five in a big. Greek family and my two oldest brothers were 15 and 18 years old when I was born and they were already firefighters by the time I was three years old. Um, so uh, I grew up in a firehouse. I grew up putting out fires in my Tonka trucks in the backyard. My brothers would light them on fire. Uh, they'd light cardboard box on fire. I'd be playing with my Legos in the living room. And my brother Demetrius would run out with a little bell and I'd go freaking out and go run out, get my trucks and go lay a line from the corner of the living room in the kitchen to the boxes on fire. And 
we had some Tonka trucks and some Chevron tanker trucks and an ambulance and all this stuff. And I, I never went on medical aid calls, though. It was cool. It was the early 70s. It was before Johnny and Roy. So um, ISO <laughs> rating in my fire department was 10,000. And uh, the uh, the we had one SOG, basically defensive operations at the corner, surround and drown. No RIC teams, no two out. It was the early 70s. It was a good time. Um, so I kind of cut my teeth with Tonka trucks. And <laughs> honest to God, gentlemen, I feel like my whole career was like that. My, every day I walked into the firehouse, um, my last day, uh, I felt like I walked into a big garage full of Tonka trucks and I got to play with them every day. And the, and the guys and gals I got to work with were, were awesome. And it was a joy. Um, and so, um, you know, for me, I feel like I lived the dream. I think I've been blessed with amazing family, my brothers, my sisters, my parents. Uh, my dad was a World War II uh, infantryman in the Pacific. He instilled hard work in all of us. My brothers were my mentors. Um, and I had this strong desire to not only find mentors and coaches in life, but also to be one to others because that was given to me. And so I think that's what fuels the passion that we have on our team to help other people and help them grow, whether it's to promote or be better officers or, or take their fire department to a new level, um, whether command and tactics or uh, leadership wise. So uh, that's just a little bit about me. I'm, I'm very passionate about my faith in God and my family. I have two beautiful daughters, Aubrey and Sophia. And um, they're 17 and 11, and my beautiful wife, Cynthia, we've been married 20 years. And uh, I, I always tell people I think I'm the most blessed person I know. Uh, and being in the fire service, as everybody knows, listening to this is a joy. It's a gift. Um, however, I think things are changing. And I'm glad that we have an opportunity to talk about that this morning. There's a lot of things changing right now, and um, I want to get into that with you guys. So thanks for having me. Of course, Chief. Thank you so much. And we look forward to this. And so as we uh, navigate and talk leadership today, and have this conversation wherever it takes us. You've talked extensively in the past and something that you call the leadership pandemic. Can you first and foremost, before we get into your topic of choice today, what do you mean by the leadership pandemic? Talk to us about that. So I coined the phrase, the American service leadership pandemic, probably going on 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago, well before the COVID pandemic. Um, because I saw this, I saw this freight train coming uh, that we're in right now. Um, and to me, it was a pandemic of leadership issues. Um, it's not that we don't have good individual leaders, you know, present company, for example, um, guys are doing amazing work and leading your organizations, leading regionally, nationally with, with programs like this. My concern is that we are not developing leaders in mass in, in our organizations organically. What I mean by that is that more and more departments are hiring our our team to come in and train their officers, which is great. We're, we're thankful and happy to do it. But they don't have a whole lot of organic internal leadership programs, uh, either to develop leaders or sustain leaders. There's not a lot of leadership or command or tactical training that's organic to an organization. They go third party. Um, and so there's not internal programs that, that build or sustain leaders. Once you get promoted, you're on your mm -hmm. own. And that's not okay. It's not, so, not a very good model. The military doesn't use it. The airlines don't use it. Um, if you look at the airline industry, you know, airline pods have to go and get annual training and refresher training. Um, the same with the military. It's very, very, uh, it's very, very comprehensive and well thought out. And it's, it's has a lot, it's steeped in tradition, the military models, yeah. but it's also modern and it stays cutting edge to meet the new demands. And I don't feel like the fire service does that. And so I think we've, we're retiring people at a geometric rate with experience. When they leave the door, it creates a vacuum. And that vacuum 
to, it starts you know, like a pump. It starts to cavitate. If you don't have enough supply, it's going to cavitate. And I think our I think our leadership pump in the fire service is cavitating right now, and you see it through more and more behavior that is just mind blowing. Um, yeah. Individually, corporately, on online, on social media, in the firehouse, um, it's just baffling to me. Um, and I think the pandemic was a great example how a lot of departments uh, were impacted by the pandemic, how a lot of their quote unquote leaders responded to the pandemic um, was, was an example of that. And I think when you have heat and you stress an individual or an organization or a society, you see where the cracks are, right? Yeah. It's like a thermal imaging camera, you know, a thermal imaging camera in a room that's, that's cold doesn't see much. But when you, when you put heat in that room, you see the signature of the different surfaces that are absorbing rate going on in that room when you have heat. I think that's what we saw in the fire service this past three years. We've seen what's really going on. We've seen this massive issue of recruitment retention. We've seen this massive issue of social media being used for really bad behavior uh, in mass. Um, and we're seeing officers who lack initiative mm -hmm. and who lack the bias for action and who don't set the example. And to me, um, it, these are things that can be taught and learned, but, yeah. but I think the fire service has taken a very uh, passive approach. And I think we're paying for it now. Wow. Well, Chief, if I could cut in here a little bit, you know, I, I love that concept and I've heard it before. You talk about that leadership pandemic and it's something we've actually referenced in a couple of our other episodes. And to be honest, it really is the why behind this podcast, right? Is because there's, there's tons of books and, you know, all kinds of leadership manuals and things out there. In fact, you've authored several of them that, that I've gone and, and, uh, um, you know, I've read and I've sat in classes of yours, but uh, you know, the thing is, is that I, I love how you talk about the connection. I mean, you yourself had a natural connection to the fire service, right? I mean, you were born in and around the fire service, just like you said, your brothers, brothers kind of forced on you. And I was very similar that, you know, my brother was a firefighter in Alaska um, and, you know, he was older than me. He's 11 years older than me. So when I came along, by the time I graduated high school, you know, when things weren't going the way that I wanted it to go, he's like, dude, you got to come in the fire service kind of a deal. But, um, you know, we don't have that natural connection anymore with a lot of our, our current workforce. You know, we're, we're, we're seeking and we're actively seeking a different employee. And that's great. Um, but one of the things is, is they don't have those natural connections. And so we have to figure out as leaders, how do we make those connections into the fire service? How do we make those connections into leadership? How do we make them, you know, go that next step? And, and we're going to talk more about it here in a little bit. But, you know, you talk of all the topics that you talk about, you know, taking initiative and setting an example. You know, those are your two real big hot topics when we come to this, this portion of leadership. You know, why those topics? Like what, what makes you choose that? I'm glad you asked, Chief. Um, I think there, you've all heard the term bias for action. Um, you know, basically we all have a bias, right? We have biases, tendencies, beliefs. Um, a bias for action is a, is, a, is a tendency to take action. It's a tendency to jump in the fray. It's a tendency to, to jump in and, and initiate action when none is being taken. And that's what leaders need to have. And I think many leaders today don't have that. And it's a key ingredient to effective leadership. I think they don't have it because A, uh, they're afraid of, of peer pressure. They're afraid of being more of a buddy than a boss, as Chase Sargent would say. They're concerned with um, being uh, criticized, ridiculed, or ostracized by their crew socially. Uh, they'll be uninvited to dinner, uninvited to social events, uninvited to you know the next fishing trip or, or not get a next Christmas card. It's happened to me, I get it. Um, <clears throat> so 
But I also think it's a, it's a derivative of a lack of training. I think that we are not training our officers well enough. There, see, there's things we can control and things we cannot control. I like to keep it simple. I cannot control if, if my officer corps or my candidates for officer are younger or less experienced who were not born into a family that had was in the fire service or the military. I can't control if they didn't grow up working at a grocery store at age 12 or 18 or 16 or 15, or they didn't work on a farm or weren't wrenching, wrenching on, on cars and on engines. And I can't control that. I can't control um, their approach to the workplace, to the fire service, if it's just a job or not. I can't control that. What I can do is train them. I can train them to appreciate these things. I can train them on the history. I can get to know them. I can get to know them on an individual level, not just as a generation, which is important, but then dive into the micro and, and learn everybody who you're dealing with individually and establish relationships and mutual trust and respect and find those connecting points that do internally motivate them, that make them want to be their best, that make them want to step up and lead, that make them want to uh, go outside their comfort zone and then equip them. Once you, once you inspire them, you have to equip them with the tools to do it. And I don't think a lot of departments teach things like conflict resolution, risk management, good communication, how to inspire your crew or your team. And I also think they're not supported. I think once a, a boss is out there, a new, a new young officer is out there, they don't have ongoing training. And they also don't have um, the support when they do make a tough decision, uh, if they even do. And so the notion of setting the example and, and, and for that bias for action and jumping into the fray uh, into things like conflict resolution is, is eroding as we speak. And you could say it's a derivative of, of where America and the world is right now, the work ethic and all that kind of stuff. You talk to uh, a lot of people outside our industry and they're saying the same thing. Um, but I do think we can control how much we train them. And, and lying dormant in every aspiring firefighter and officer is a desire to be inspired. Every person on this planet wants to be inspired and wants to be respected. And it may not look like it did when we were coming up, you know, Chief, you know, you had an older brother. Um, I had two older brothers. We all had different connections. You can't just say, well, when I was coming up, who cares? That's, that's then, what's now? What's going on now? What's going on in that person's individual <laughs> life that you can connect to and respect them to get them to lean in and then have those fertile ears to want to learn what you're trying to teach them. I, I love the thought that what you said there about can control and cannot control, you know, so much, so many times we dwell on things that we, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. They were already in place. You know, I always try to bring it back towards fire service stuff. It's kind of like when we talk about critical fire ground factors, right? There's, there's fixed factors. And those are things that are already there. You can't change you know, when the building was built. You can't change the type of building construction it is. Um, and so worry about, we always talk about worrying about the variable factors, the things you can control, the stuff prior to you getting there. So I, I, I really like that analogy um, be, because it is a pitfall for a lot of leaders. Do you, why do you think that is, Chief? Why do you guys think that we tend to obsess about that which we cannot control? Why do we do that? I'm not looking for a D answer. I'm just curious uh, what your opinion is. Well, in my opinion, if you ask me, I mean, I, I like to study the psychology on human behavior specifically specifically when we talk about you know trying to perform at an optimal level or seek high performance and what i've come to learn that as humans naturally it's always easier to point a finger and say you know that's the problem he's the problem she's a problem you know this or that is the problem and the things that are in our control things that we individually you know have to change as human beings that can be scary right 
it's always scarier to try to change us than it is to say, you know what, it's that person's problem and they need to change and they need to fix it. Also, by focusing on what we control, it takes things like, you know, self-reflection, you know, intention to change, things like that. It, it can be difficult for an individual to want to do, you know, willingly, right? That brings us to the next part here. And it's a great segue into the next portion. That's Chief, how much do you believe is the responsibility of an organization versus an individual? Because an organization we talked in early, earlier episodes is there, uh, each organization does have a responsibility to provide opportunity to their members, to provide options for them for, you know, whether it be professional development or progression. But there's also a responsibility of each individual to take their path. Um, they have to be self-motivated. They got to be inspired. You know, you you mentioned the difference between being inspired versus being self-motivated. But, but each individual needs to start with self. And so I guess my question to you is, as we talk about initiative, how much does it start with an individual needing that drive before they have an expectation of the organization to provide all X, you know, training X, Y, Z. I love that question. It's kind of like the chicken and the, and the, and the egg, right? Which one comes first? And I think it's almost a circular thing. And where do you jump in? Obviously the individual has to have ownership. And I think one of the biggest problems in the world today, not just the fire service is a lack of individual accountability, a lack of internal motivation. Um, however, when you look at somebody who has a quote bad attitude, the first place that we need to look is the leadership. I always said, if I'm a boss, and that's what I teach, is if you're a boss and you have a problem with somebody, the first place to look for the source of the problem is in the mirror because you are the leader. They have expectations of you that they don't have of other people. You have responsibility to them and you are very, very uh, responsible for their safety, for their well being. Uh, for their mindset and for their overall work environment. Uh, you can make it miserable, you can make it great. And you have to set an example. And if that's not being done by the boss, uh, which a lot of times it's not, and a lot of times those bosses have blind spots. I know I've had blind spots um, where I'm like, think I'm just killing it and I'm actually not. And uh, there's a big problem brewing right under my big fat nose. <laughs> and, I don't feel it. Um, and so I think, that's part of it. But I, so I think we need to look at the individual and say, does this individual have baggage? Does this individual have uh, issues from childhood, from the fire department, from the personal life that is affecting their ability to be their best, to be the best they can, even if they don't want to promote, just to be the best they can as a firefighter. But I also think the individual needs to step up and be honest and check their own baggage. And they need to learn how to do that, but they don't know how. Um, so the individual has to do it, but I think the organization has to provide the opportunity and the environment for that to thrive. And I see both. And I and so there's kind of like a, a, a game of blink. Who's going to blink first, right? Mm -hmm. And I've seen it happen time and time again where the old the old bosses, the old the old gray hairs, they sit there and complain about the next generation. They complain about the latest crop of captains or whatever. And I say, well, you know, who who made them that way, or whose responsibility is it to fix it? Well, they need to, they need to know, they need to, fit. no, they don't, they don't need any, you are their boss, you are the leader, you're passing the buck to them. Well, that's not what was done for me. They just told me to figure it out. Well, how'd that work out for you? You kind of suck right now with what you're saying. You kind of actually don't sound like a very good leader. You're, yeah. you're, you're, you're kicking the can down the road to the next group of people, telling them to figure it out. You're, you're, you're being that child abuser because you're an abused child as a leader. Yeah. And so, but I also believe 
that I'm not going to spoon feed people either. I, I told, I've told many individuals, I'm not going to work harder than you at your own success. I'm not going to work harder than you at your own promotion, for example. So it's like, I'm going to provide the environment. I'm going to try and inspire you. But if you, but if I still have to spoon feed you and cram it down your throat and uh, I'm not going to, that's not going to last very long. Yeah. So it's a partnership really. Absolutely. Well, every, um, Every organization in every industry, right? Not just the fire service, but every industry that we could think of. There's bad leadership, right? Let's let's just throw that out there, right? Even the most successful Fortune 500 uh, companies, they all have. There's bad leadership in there. Many individuals will promote because of bad leadership, right? Some people will say, "Well, I'm going to promote because I want to be what that person wasn't for me," and so on and so forth. So um, these individuals want to be that change, that change in culture, step up to be leaders themselves because they didn't have that in front of them. What are your thoughts on that concept of I will lead because that person didn't do it for me? I think that's okay. Um, just don't make it baggage. You know, um, we all carry baggage. We all have it. Every all four of us have it. Everybody listening to this, watching this, eventually everybody you meet in the planet has baggage. The key is, can you manage your baggage? Can you check your bags at the door and in, in when you walk into work, when you walk in to be with your family from work and back and forth? And I think that. If somebody says, well, I have crappy bosses, so I'm going to promote, that's fine. Hey, if that's what, if that's what um, inspired you, great. Uh, we all need something. And I've had many, many aspiring officers tell me that. Oh, man, my bosses suck. I just finally figured out. Or they, they'll say, I was looking at who else is testing, and I got to test out, out test them because I don't want to work for so-and-so. I get it, but don't let it become baggage. Mm. Don't let it become personal. Don't let it become a competition. Um, there's a slippery slope between inspiration and baggage. Um, baggage. Can you, uh, Chief, can you, uh, I love that baggage part. I love it. Can you uh, just a little bit further? Because I've I, I listened to you talk about baggage and it's so powerful because we all have it. I've had it. And it can, it can really deter one's focus on whatever direction they're going. So if you don't mind, just elaborate uh, more on baggage because I love it. Well, you know, shameless plug. Here it comes. In our assessment center book, um, that's where I really first introduced the concept of baggage because it became very obvious to, to us teaching these assessment center classes. Um, that's a, it's a situation where firefighters are vulnerable. When, when a firefighter wants to promote, they're putting themselves out, right? They've been talking smack their whole career. They've been sitting, at the, sitting there recliner snapping, shooting everybody down. You're too young. You're too old. You're stupid. You shouldn't try and promote. Shooting that down everything that was ever good in their firehouse because of their own baggage because they were bullied as a kid because their dad they don't have a dad they don't have a mom their parents split up when they were when they were little maybe they have maybe they're going through a divorce um maybe they tried to take the test two three times and they got passed over they didn't make the list baggage we all have it it accumulated if you're watching me long enough in this in this uh zoom meeting you'll see i twitch i have i have tourette syndrome so i'm especially more excited to get the more i twitch and so I'm like a hummingbird on crack when I, when I drink a Pepsi. <laughs> so the point is, is everybody has it. And so we found that in the promotional process, it comes out like you don't even know you're doing it. So, for example, we, we'd have people going through a counseling exercise and they would just lose it. They would. One time we had a guy um, portraying a company officer in a counseling exercise and he was he was giving his new crew. Uh, They're having a meeting, his first initial meeting with his crew. And we had one of them, you know, obviously, invariably texting, right, kind of ignoring him. And about three minutes into it, he grabbed the phone, just grabbed it. He goes, hey, hey, freaking it. He just lost it, started passing him out. And we said, whoa, time out. And he goes, oh, my God, that was my kid. That was my teenage son. He's doing that right now. And that was baggage. 
and and it it crops up on you when you least expect it. Another yeah. example was a a really uh, a lot older firefighter in his fifties who was taking his captain's test for the first time, and he had a lot of baggage. Poor guy had been through a lot of trauma personally, um, and he really didn't like the younger generation. And pretty much everybody in the department was younger than him because he was, he was in his late fifties. But he he overcame that and took the test. Well, his first promotional test, you know, uh, he walks in and his assessors are all younger than him, and you know. Unless, unless they were Jesus or Moses, they're all going to be younger than him because he's so freaking old. So he walks in with his just Samsonites that he doesn't even realize he's dragging in with him. He's dragging these Samsonites. He pops them on the table. And one of the younger assessors asks him during a simulation, did you get a water supply on that last fire? And he goes, to give him the look, he always would give younger guys. He tilt his head, he get that look and go, yeah, I got a water supply. If you were paying attention, you would have heard me. And that mm -hmm. was, he just went right back to, you're younger than me. I should be you, you should, you know, and just yeah. slinging baggage. And I'm happy to say he overcame it. He didn't pass that test, but he overcame it and passed the test later when he was like 87 years old, but he made it. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is, is baggage is, it, it holds us down. It lies dormant. It could be triggered by a person that you don't even know. Seeing somebody dressed a certain way, um, somebody cutting you off in traffic, being at the grocery store, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. You watch a video of, you watch a video of uh, Cal Fire, Cal Fire crew loading up their groceries in the parking lot of a grocery store. And this, this older citizen, oh, yep. up and starts, remember that one? They start yep, yep. yelling at him, what the hell, what the hell? And they find out after a while, he goes, well, this damn tax initiative that they have, that yep. was his baggage. That was the reason. So um, I think firefighters are, we're not, uh, without training, we're not the most emotionally intelligent uh, creatures on the planet. Uh, and you really can't be if you want to go into burning buildings, I don't think. Yeah. But um, with learning, they can learn their own baggage. Everyone can learn their own stuff and check it at the door and not let it uh, become a, a landmine that blows them up. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit because I, I love this next part of this topic here. When you start talking about setting the example. Now, you know, something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast is, is this whole idea that, you know, not everyone really wants to promote. And then not everyone honestly needs to promote, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a 30 year firefighter, engineer, you know, company officer, lieutenant, you know, battalion chief, whatever, wherever you want to be. But we do talk about the idea of leading where you are. Right. And I think that you touch on it when you talk about your topic, too, that you wanted to speak on when we say setting the example. So talk a little bit about setting the example, leading from where you are and that whole concept. Everybody, everybody has a sphere of influence in their life, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not, whether you're, whether you're a parent, um, you're a big brother, big sister, you're a neighbor, you have no idea, but you have a sphere of influence in your life, whether or not you're a, a formalized leader. The, the probationary firefighter has a, a, a sphere of influence. It could be their parents, could be a little brother or sister, it could be a neighbor uh, down the street, it could be, who knows? Um, a high school buddy, somebody who's going through a tough time. And so recognizing that you're always, you're always on display. When you put up, when you, when you, when you raise your right hand, you take that badge, you are now on display. You are a leader, whether or not you're of rank, whether or not you've been promoted or you're a firefighter your first day, when you pull off, pull out and, and jump off a fire engine, the public has no idea what the red helmet is, what the white helmet is, what the yellow helmet is, what the black helmet is. They don't know rank. They don't know seniority. They don't care. They see somebody in a uniform and that person is to them going to lead them through this bad time. 
whether it's a medical aid or a structure fire or heaven forbid loss of their own children, that proby paramedic firefighter is a leader right then and there. And those people will remember that individual their whole lives. An example, <clears throat> I was a, a captain and we uh, were at an uh, engine medic house. And the firefighter that was working overtime that day was about a two-year firefighter paramedic. And there happened to be an EMT ride along riding with us that day, brand new in, in EMT class student. And we went on a call and this, this two-year paramedic firefighter had a really bad attitude. He, was, he didn't think the patient needed to be transported. He didn't think, well, this is below, you know, we don't need to transport this guy kind of attitude. And long story short, I took him aside. I said, if you're transporting, you're going to do it with a smile on your face. And, and uh, he did. I took the, the EMT right along who was riding on the adults. I took the EMT student back to the station on the engine with me. Didn't tell the EMT student why. Didn't tell him, you know, that paramedic was setting a bad example. And I, I want to keep you from the contamination. That's what I'm thinking. I didn't say that. Just said, hey, why don't you come back to the station with us? There's a lot more calls. We'll probably go on while we're at the hospital get you some other experience. Oh, okay. And I didn't mention it to the paramedic uh, who had the bad attitude. He just noticed all of a sudden his EMT ride-along student was gone. And so that was a little message, you know. And so when he got back to the station, I sat down with him. I said, did you notice something? He goes, yeah, you took away the EMT student. Why do you think I did that? Because they had a bad attitude. I said, yeah. I said, whether or not you like it, you're a leader. You're supposed to set the example. You're setting an example not only to the, the family that was on scene, okay, but you're setting an example to that EMT student. Whether or not your captain's got nothing to do with it. You're a, you're a senior to him, you're a role model, and you need to seize the opportunity to set the example, and you were failing to do that. That's why I pulled you off the medic, pulled him off the medic unit. He goes, I'm really sorry. I go, I, I go. what I want you to do is I want you to go to that, that EMT student, apologize for your bad behavior, and tell him that not to follow your example, that you're having just a bad day and sorry. If you do that, we'll call it even. He goes, okay, Cat, I'll do that. So that's, that's what I'm talking about, is that we have to lead everywhere we are, and whether it's your kids, Everyone's watching when you're wearing a badge, right? It's got nothing to do with it. I mean, that really hits home. You say the sphere of influence and you say positive and negative. And when I think of, I think of sports psychology with, you know, some people don't like to say, you know, oh, I, I'm not a positive person. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not big on talking positive. Okay. That's fine. Don't talk negative then because negative is even more powerful than being positive. So when you talk about sphere of influence, a lot of times we think of, you got to be a positive influence, but also don't be a negative influence because that is just as powerful. So we, we see it all the time going back to your, your example, chief, that, you know, you can take a probie out of Academy and you assign them to a certain station house with a certain officer, with a certain crew. And I could almost write down on a piece of paper. If I was to leave him in that environment, you know, for his whole probation, what, what would come out of the other end. Right. Um, yeah. and, and that's perfect. That whole idea of that influence. And so if you see, I mean, there's people, um, in my agency that, you know, um, are still living with stuff that's happened from their sphere of influence earlier in their career. So yeah. um, you're, you're exactly right when it comes to that whole, that whole thought of setting the example and yeah. influence. And I like what you said about putting a, a, a new probe into a certain house. If they land in, and they, they land in a house full of a house full of recliner snipers, they're going to learn how to fire that rifle too. And they're going to they're going to be a sniper. They're going to have a spotter and the whole bit. And they're going to come out the other end, like you said, <laughs> teaching yeah. the next generation. And that's where the that's where we as officers need to step in and and stop the dysfunctional cycle. And that's yeah. where those hard conversations come in. Um, we have to try and appeal to that company officer that's allowing this behavior or maybe even participating. 
Yeah, yeah. you get that the class clown, you know, the kind of villagidia class clown of the firehouse. So everyone loves him. He's funny. And he's great on fires. And we all love him. He's funny as hell. But he's a character assassin. And everybody that comes in his path gets annihilated. Nobody's sacred. Yeah, I had that conversation with one of my officers years ago as a shift battalion chief. I remember, he, um, you know, he asked me, hey, why don't they get probies anymore? And so then that opened up the door for me to sit him down and give him the real answer. I'm like, do you really want to know why? And, you know, which which coin which started a long conversation on the why behind you don't why you don't get up. You know, the last two probies you have have failed their probing tests. You know, and there's a reason why that I don't send them to you. And that was a it, it was a big light bulb. And so then he, you know. The next probing class that came out, he asked me, hey, I want a probing. I'm like, oh, awesome. I'm giving you that opportunity, right? And, yeah. and it really changed behaviors once he understood. But it took that honest conversation of saying why you don't get them to, to change behavior. So I think that's great. That's that what we call the, the, the proverbial courageous conversation, adult conversation. Those aren't being had enough. So yeah. that's great that you did that. Look what happened. So, Chief, each episode we have non-negotiables. This is an awesome piece. I love it. I, I, I would assume that you have non-negotiables, Chief. These are behaviors or attitudes, attributes that are simply a no-go for you because, you know, these things can ruin a team, a culture, a person, themselves, or an organization. So if I may ask, what are your non-negotiables? Um, I drink Pepsi, not Coke, and I fly fish. I don't bait fish. No, I just – There you are, go. Those are, well, I just want to start with easy stuff. Um, non-negotiables, the, the first one for me, it's been this way, um, since I was a brand new captain all the way through my last day on the job was, was disrespect. I hate disrespect. It's got nothing to do with rank. And I'm not talking about disrespecting me. I, that's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about when I see a member of my team, my company or my battalion disrespecting somebody else, another, another member or a member of the public. Um, I have zero tolerance. That's a non-negotiable. Um, an example was a firefighter one time who <clears throat> he was uh, sit, standing in front of a house after a house fire. The house the, uh, and the crews were mucking out the house. It was his first in area. Uh, he decided he's taking a break. He's going to smoke a cigarette standing on the front front uh, driveway of this house. Wow. And now he's that bad enough. He flicks the cigarette into the gutter of the people's house while the, everyone else is working. And so I walked up to him. And I, I, I uh, put the cigarette out in the water that was draining because of the overall, and I put it in this turnout coat pocket. And I said, don't ever do that again. And um, we ended up, long story short, we ended up having a long talk later on with his captain because that was just one symptom. But he was very disrespectful. Um, I hate that because what we do as firefighters is we tend to think that, that we're better than everybody else because of, of how we're treated. We're almost like professional athletes, right? We get to run red lights. We get to go to Disneyland on Tuesday. We get free stuff. People revere us, and we haven't screwed that up yet. Um, we're, you know, but it's not not too far away. So we then we start triaging who's worthy of our respect, whether in our department and another department, on going on a call, and right at dispatch, firefighters will will determine who's worthy of their respect. Is this call worth it or not? You know, and Bruno, Bruno used to have a saying, don't, don't disqualify the customer with your qualifications. And, and that yeah. to me is, is zero tolerance because I, I hate it. We're, we're better than that. We get paid too well and we're treated too well. And we have I've sworn to be above that kind of crap and we have to respect everybody. So that's one non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, another non-negotiable, I had a, a challenge point I gave out to my, everybody in my battalion. And it was based on the book of Ephesians, which is uh, in the Bible about putting on the armor of God. 
and I would talk about about there's no back armor. We would cover each other's back in battle, right? We stand back to back. That's where the trying got your back came from. And I, I I would tell them about that, and I'd say, you know, there's no back armor. Like we cover each other's back in these battalions. Here's what I mean by that. Number one, if some if the first thing that has to needs a water supply, needs a second backup line, needs to assist with their stretch, needs you to take command or or whatever, you do that. You don't you don't try and outflank them and beat them to their own first in. You support them. I'm all for healthy competition, but not everybody gets to to uh, get a touchdown on every game. Sometimes you just got to block. I said so. That's one. The other way we take care of each other and cover each other's back is you don't talk shit. You have an issue with somebody, you go to their face. You don't go to their back. You don't backstab them. You go to their face like a like an adult. And you tell them if you have a problem with them. Because if you don't, I will hear about it. I guarantee you, I will know about it, and I won't be okay with it. And so, um, because that just erodes the team. It just erodes the team. It's it's not not okay. So I would say those are two of my biggest non-negotiables. Powerful. So, Chief. Each episode, we also spend time on a hot topic, and I'm going to go back to something we mentioned at the very beginning because uh, it is, it's, it's, I want to spend a little bit of time there. You had mentioned, um, well, we talked about the leadership pandemic. You talked about how we don't spend enough time, you know, training soft skills, communication skills, this and that. You talked about emotional intelligence. Departments do spend a lot of money, although on the hard skills, obviously, right? Throw up, you know, pulling hose, throwing packs, throwing ladders, you know, taking blood pressures. But as we know that departments don't spend a lot of time training people to be good leaders, intentionally being good mentors, communication skills. We expect people, especially emerging leaders, which a lot of our listeners today are emerging leaders. We ask them to take that next step to lead people, to mentor people, um, to communicate well, to, you know, to build a cohesive team. But where along the lines have organizations intentionally put money behind training those? So I guess the topic and the question is, how can departments get there? And is there is it their responsibility if the expectations there to to train on emotional intelligence, on building communication skills, on being better mentors, leaders, and so on and so forth? So, I, I appreciate that question. It's a great question. Yes, it is incumbent and it's the responsibility of fire departments to train their leaders. Where would we be if again if airlines said that's not our job? Every pilot needs to go out and figure it out, and get his own training. We have a lot more crashes. <laughs> yeah. Um, what if the military said that? Where are they going to go? Um, and so, and, and the other thing, even on a good day, if, if you have 10 officers or 10 aspiring officers who are going on their own to get training, that's great. But what if they're getting 10 different ways of doing something They come back to the organization? Now you're not consistent. You're not teaching the, the mission of this organization, the core values of this organization, the vision of this organization. And everyone is unique. Everyone has a unique skill set, a unique uh, demographic you're serving. Not everybody's Detroit, FDNY, or Houston, or LA City. Everyone's different. Um, and so when we travel the country, we've been very blessed. We've, we've traveled and, and taught and been hosted by over 170 fire departments around the nation. And in doing that, you get to see a lot of different stuff, but you also get to see a trend, a national trends. And the biggest national trend I see is a lack of in-house leadership training. And to me, that is what is costing us the most. You know, you may lose your life on the fire ground, but you'll lose your career in the firehouse. And that's a big problem. And you and and I've seen it. I've been part of it. I've seen it. I've seen crews um, and officers act in despicable fashion. You know, one one minute they're going to run into a burning building and save a family, save a perfect stranger. The next minute they're absolutely, you know, exhibiting abhorrent behavior that is illegal, 
yeah. that is, you know, fireable offenses that is just, you can't, you can't understand how these two things can coexist. You can, and that, that stuff is what needs to be passed on. A very, you know, there's a lot of large organizations that are very successful that don't have conflict resolution training for their officers. They don't yeah. have any emotional intelligence training, no risk management training how to take somebody through a counseling coaching coaching process, how to develop a performance improvement plan, um, how to listen, how to communicate effectively, how to resolve conflict, how to inspire, and what's the difference between inspiration and motivation. All those kinds of things are so critical. And, and officers just bebop through the day. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. captains become glorified, um, glorified clipboard holders on, on EMS calls. If I, if I may, Chief, real quick, in your department, what did your department have? I mean, I'm curious as to in, up here in Washington, I look around in our surrounding agencies. A lot of our agencies don't have these things. I mean, if I may ask, did your department have some of these, these trainings in conflict resolution and communication? And if so, why unique to your department and not, why do you believe others aren't? Um, we did. And I was fortunate in that, um, I got to be a battalion chief for 13 years and I stayed in the same battalion, same shift for 13 years. And I was passionate about command and, and leadership. I didn't care about all the other stuff. I cared and I, was, and I did with my job, but my passions were leadership and command. And so I was fortunate that the department gave me and, and several others opportunities to grow that program. A lot of great people came into the program and built the program. Uh, Mission-centered uh, solutions was an organization we brought in. But the goal was always to build our own in-house cadre and our own in-house curriculum. Uh, we had a lot of folks from the military, and, and I find the people in the fire service who are of the military, they're the most frustrated with leadership because they had good leadership in the fire in the, in the military. They had good systems. And so they come to the fire service thinking, oh, I'm going to have this chain of command, all this discipline. They find that it's a big letdown. So they're the ones that oftentimes are, are fueling this these new programs. And so... We had one program, a good friend of mine who was a captain that retired as a battalion chief, really spearheaded a leadership program. Um, I, I wrote curriculum on battalion chief and captain academies, and we all kind of contributed together, and, and that kind of built a snowball effect. Then, then, then others brought in um, task books, just like the National Wildland Coordinating Group would have a task book for a particular ICS position. We have task books for firefighter, for uh, engineer for captain for battalion chief for for truck operator they actually had to finish a task book to become truck qualified so it wasn't just rank driven it was also skill set driven um, so between the task books and, and the academies and then we introduced um, evaluations when i was a captain there were no evaluations then we introduced three and six month evaluations for the probationary captains mentoring programs all these things came along organically from within because a lot of us saw the need and we were supported to make those things happen. And it was a blessing. And that's where I got to learn from them and from other programs on what worked and what didn't. And so that's kind of, and, and I, I was just happy. I just got a text literally two weeks ago from a captain who said, hey, we're doing this now. And, and this was a, pro, a project we were working on and something they were hoping was gonna come. And it happened four years after I retired. But you know what? It happened. And that's yeah. all that matters. And so yeah. it's, a, it's kind of a continuum. And I'm really proud of Metro Fire for what they've done internally with that stuff. That's awesome. And, and I think you're right that 
you know, it can't be, you know, sometimes organizations make it too narrow focus. Like they try to implement one style of leadership, you know, up, up in Washington, and I'm sure it's everywhere, but, you know, up here, a lot of, a lot of our fire service leaders are using, you know, like extreme ownership, you know, using Jocko stuff as, as being their, their deal. But I always tell people that you really need to make it a variety. You need to train on a bunch of different topics because people need to understand that everyone has different needs, right? You know, some of them may need communication. Some of them may need conflict, you know, resolution. Some of them may need, um, you know, other different types of skills. So I think it's important, like you were talking about Chief Castro's is having a variety of trainings and letting people get strong in their, in their, in their areas of weakness, because I think that's where we really need to concentrate on too. So. I totally, I totally agree with that. And at the same time, we have to have everybody on the same page. Yeah. So if you have, you know, one, one, one captain's laissez-faire, the other captain's hardcore, you know, it has to, we all have to have continuity. And I think the mission-driven, mission-centered model is really good. It's military-based and it's really what we need. I think it resonates with, with um, today's firefighters and fire officers. But, you know, the biggest thing I look at is, is I mean, look at a paramedic. You know, I always say this. You know, a paramedic has to go through some 1,500 hours of training uh, to become like certified, right? They have to go through a full semester of didactic. Then they have to go through a semester of clinical. Then they have to go through a 40-shift ride-along where they're an intern. Um, and they, my saying is, you know, a paramedic can only kill one person at a time. <laughs> and yet we give them all this training. A captain, lieutenant can kill a whole crew, and a battalion chief can kill a whole alarm, and a fire chief can kill a whole department, the soul of a department. And yet, how much training do they get? You know, what, when we really give an EMT a drug box and a, and a defibrillator and an airway bag and say, you know what, you've been an EMT for five years, you've been on a lot of medical aids, you're now a paramedic, you're, you'll, you'll figure it out. How many people are they going to kill before they, quote, figure it out? And, and what, how, how are they going to find out? Are they going to ask other paramedics who also had to figure it out themselves? And so that's kind of what the fire service is doing with leadership. It's, 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 it's why we're having the issues we're having. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I love that, that yeah, you said that. I actually, I think it was episode one or two. I uh, I quoted your chief. You had mentioned in one of your webinars, the uh, leadership is like parenting concept of, you know, as a leader, kind of like as parents, you have to figure it out, right? That as parents, you don't just say, ah, I'm not going to be a parent today, right? And I, I like I said, I, I quoted you and I, I really respect uh, this concept of yours of leadership if we all as leaders treated it like parenting i think we would all automatically become better leaders because there's no excuse we figure it out as parents and if we figure it out as leaders we would instantly be on a path to a better spot so uh i just want to mention that i did coin you because it was awesome this is the rapid fire coffee top off so please chief if you don't mind talk to three groups of individuals talk to the first and foremost the upcoming leader the emerging leader then the established number one recommend one thing that the newer employee that upcoming leader, something that they could do today, right now, that demonstrates taking initiative or setting a good example? The upcoming leader needs to be a good follower first. That's a, that's a prerequisite of leadership is followership. Um, I think that also have the initiative we talked about, initiative on the little things, whether it's doing the dishes in the sink or mopping the floor and doing it well. And having that foundation because that's going to set you up for success so you don't become a hypocrite. And and take and carrying out the little things because the little things matter, not just the big stuff. Because everything big is comprised of a bunch of little things. Absolutely. You can't be good at the big stuff unless you're good at the little stuff first. So that would be my my advice for the emerging or the the new leader. 
new leader. Perfect. So for that emerging leader, we're talking that brand new company officer, maybe a training officer, maybe someone that is about to take that role into that, that formal leadership spot. Recommend one thing that they could do today to take action that demonstrates initiative or setting a good example. Well, just to do it, to realize that here's, the, here's some tools I think that's going to help you take initiative and set an example. Realize as a leader, there's two things happening simultaneously that's not happening with somebody who's not in a formal leadership role. Okay, The two things that are happening is the task at hand, the job that we need to do right now, whatever that is, whether it's on the fire ground or the fire station. And then there's the leadership element of that same task. So it's like a fraction. The common denominator to everything you do as a leader, um, especially new leader, is the leadership element. That's the common denominator. The numerator is the task at hand. So we're going to the store to get dinner. That's the task. We're, we're first in on a fire. That's the task. We're going to do a drill. That's the task. We're going to test hose. That's the task. The common denominator to each one of those is leadership. And I think a lot of new leaders don't recognize the, the common denominator of their leadership in all of that. What do I mean by that? You have an opportunity in every one of those events, that those tasks that you're trying to get done to set the example of compassion, clear communication, patience, uh, clear, clear intent, uh, receiving feedback, staying humble, all the things that people are watching. Because you know the old saying, firefighters don't always listen, but they're always watching. That's the piece, is that they watch, not just how to get, we don't want to just get the work done. They're going to take notice on if you were participating in the work, if you were patient, if you took opportunities to teach people, maybe they haven't done hose testing before. You could teach the entire crew how to do a hose test. Maybe the engineer has never done a pump test. You're doing a pump test because uh, that's on the to-do list today. That's the task of the day. And if you don't teach your engineer how to do it patiently, um, that's you're, you're missing the leadership opportunity in that moment. Something as simple as going to the store. You know, Have you taken into consideration what everybody else wants to eat? Have you taken into consideration somebody on a 72? somebody who cooks all the time and he doesn't want to cook today, that, you know, all those little things matter. And they're the things that, that you don't see, but you feel. And those are the things that, that really impact your leadership. They're, they're the soft skills. And a new leader needs to understand that that's going on all the time. We talk about teachable moments. Yeah, you can just tell a firefighter to do something, or you can teach them how to do that same something. And maybe now, you've led them and made them better instead of just getting the job done. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. Finally, the established leader. This is that senior member of the organization. Could be a senior officer, chief officer, uh, the administrative level. Recommend one thing that those individuals could do today, right now, that demonstrates initiative or setting the example at that level. You probably heard me talk about the tactical gap. The tactical gap is, is a major factor in the world of the fire service and it happens on the fire ground and it happens in the administrative realm. And um, we're just working with a, a major department on the East Coast about this right now, we're doing some training for them. And the tactical gap for those senior officers, those executive level, strategic level chiefs been a lot, around a long time. The tactical gap is that space between the office, the headquarters and strategic level chiefs and the floor. It's the space that occupies normally by the battalion chiefs or that level the middle manager. So if, if you have the executive leaders or at the top or the human, look at the human body, the executive level is the neck and above. The task level are the crews, hands and feet, arms, legs working. But there's a very vital piece in between called the spine. And that spine has that umbilical cord, umbilical cord, sorry, I haven't had my EMT research in 20 years. The spinal cord 
The spinal cord is what sends those signals from the brain to the hands and feet. Well, guess what? If it's severed, what happens? Nothing, right? Well, in a lot of departments, that tactical space, that, that cord is severed. There's not good communication and continuity from the strategic to the task. And so bosses at the uh, at headquarters wonder why it's not going like they think it's going. And crews don't, you know, basically what you have is you have crews and strategic level chiefs at, on two different pages. And it's like two different realities. One thinks the morale is great. The other one thinks the morale is in the toilet. One thinks the department's going in the right direction. One thinks the department's going in the wrong direction. And you see it time and time and time again. This We call it the disconnect, right? And so what I would say to those chiefs at the top is you have to recognize the tactical gap is, is in your organization. Every department has it. And you have to learn how to bridge the tactical gap. And the primary, it's on everyone to do that, but the primary role player in that objective is the battalion chief or district chief level. That battalion chief or district chief, as some call it, has to be highly hostile, mobile, and agile. They have to have the hostility to own their space and not apologize for being middle management. Don't bitch about being middle management. Don't hide from everybody. Don't complain and whine that no one listens to you. If you think you're irrelevant, so will everybody else. That contributes to the tactical gap. Um, you have to own the, that middle manager level and your battalion or your district. You have to be agile. You have to think and be able to understand where the department's going strategically, but you have to remember where you came from and what the crews are actually experiencing at the task level. And you have to be mobile. I always tell, I always tell middle managers, the battalion chiefs, you have to have the most minutes on your phone and the most miles on your mm -hmm. VC vehicle because you're constantly driving around. And, and calling people and closing the loop and, and clarifying issues and clarifying orders and clarifying policy and clarifying issues and back and forth, up and down. You're, you're taking stuff up and down the chain. Just like I want to tell my hand to grab something, my hand's going to tell me that is going to burn you. <laughs> so we have to have both. And I think the tactical gap is, is present. And I think it's the biggest problem that, that strategic executive leaders have is not recognizing it and bridging it. Have you heard it, everybody? Be a good follower. Focus on little things. Get the little things done. Lead from everywhere and also recognize that tactical gap and bridge that gap. So the leadership challenge today, Chief, we close each episode with what we call the leadership challenge. This is where we ask our guest speaker to call out or to challenge an individual that they believe would be a good candidate to talk leadership in a future episode of The Kitchen Table. So if I may, Chief, put you on the spot a little bit. Is there an individual out there that you believe would be willing to come speak leadership with us at the kitchen table? Yeah, I do. There's a couple. Can I do two? Is that okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. Of course. Uh, one, one is a dear friend of mine who has a tremendous amount of experience at all levels. Um, his name is Brett Loomis. He's a battalion chief for the Corvallis fire department in Oregon. So not too far from you. Um, and he is really, he's got this amazing uncanny ability uh, and experience level that allows him to really connect to everybody. He can take people and connect them and, and bridge that tackle gap like, so, like no one I've ever seen. It's probably because he's worked in all three levels. So that'd be number one, Brett Loomis. And then um, Battalion Chief uh, Brian Brush, if you haven't already had him, he's, he's from Midwest City, Oklahoma. And he is one of the founders and uh, uh, leaders of firefighterrescuesurvey.com. And he is uh, an amazing mind. He and I, uh, another shameless plug, he and I are, are going to uh, write uh, a book on incident command for fire engineering that's uh, coming out probably in 24. 
and he's he's really helped the American fire service get back to search culture. Um, him and his team and the people that he, that he surrounds himself with, the folks over at fire, uh, Firefighter Rescue Survey. Um, if anybody's listening to this, you haven't explored firefighterrescuesurvey.com, please do. It's amazing, very, very compelling statistics on search and rescue of, that firefighters are doing every day. Um, they have over 3,000 captured rescues that, that firefighters have done to civilians. This is, not, this is not law enforcement. This is not self-rescue. This is not a neighbor. This is firefighters going into a burning building and getting people rescued out. Um, there's an average of 10 a day, and they have all kinds of statistics on the best practices, what some key components are to success. So those are the two guys. That wow. <laughs> Thank you so much. So what we'll do is I'll, at a later time, gather that contact information to let uh, Brett Loomis and Battalion Chief Brian Brush know they've officially been leadership tagged by, by <laughs> Chief Castro. So that's awesome. Love Thank that. you, so as we close, again, we want to thank you, Chief Castros, for taking the time to speak today at the kitchen table. Chief Castros has influenced thousands of firefighters across the country, not just to promote up through the ranks in the organizations, but have also helped those individuals become stronger firefighters, command officers, leaders, mentors, and also a term that you call pioneers. If you haven't already, I would encourage anyone and everyone listening today to check out trainedfirefighters.com to see how you, your organizations could help become better and to also bridge this gap at what the chief calls the leadership pandemic. So I do want to thank everyone for tuning into the kitchen table today. We hope that you have found this time valuable and that we've inspired you to take action and to lead. Until next time, be safe, be intentional, and stay curious.